0: Hello and welcome to the second of a two-part BJ Psych Advances podcast looking at the fascinating topic of malingering. My name is Howard Ryland. I am the trainee editor of BJ Psych Advances and I'm very pleased today to be joined by Dr Derek Tracy, a consultant psychiatrist at Oxley's NHS Foundation Trust and BRC Research Fellow at the IOPPN in London, and Professor Keith Ricks, Honorary Forensic Consultant Psychiatrist at Norfolk and Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust, and Visiting Professor of Medical Jurisprudence at the University of Chester. Derek and Keith, thank you for joining me today. So we've heard about the complexities of assessing somebody for possible uh, malingering as a clinician. And now I want to go on to look at the related issues around medico-legal reporting. And I'd like to start off by asking you Professor Ricks, what is the role of the clinician in the medico-legal reporting of malingering and what are the limitations of this role? It is my
1: view and I think shared by many that the term malingering is actually uh, best avoided. Of course it is an issue that has to be considered in any uh, case before the court, but uh, it's important to realise that the courts uh, decide about a person's character and uh, credibility. Uh, To quote an American judge, uh, obviously talking about uh, the criminal courts uh, where there is a jury who said that the jury is the lie detector. Uh, In uh, a case in an English court, uh, the judge said it's for the jury, with all the warnings from counsel and the court, which the law requires, to decide whether or not that witness is giving reliable evidence. And judges have a handbook which they use uh, when they are deciding how to... uh, instruct a jury before the jury goes out to consider its uh, verdict and uh, that handbook includes uh, an instruction in the following terms. Assessment of reliability, truthfulness, importance and weight of evidence is for the jury alone. Uh, Obviously the corollary of that is that it's not for the expert to come along and tell the court uh, whether Uh, a defendant, a claimant or a witness is telling the truth or not. The expert who does that will stray beyond uh, the uh, proper role of the expert, they will tread on the toes of the judge, Uh, they risk usurping the function of the judge and uh, if uh, they do so they may come in for judicial uh, criticism. There was a case in which an expert in a case of historical child abuse referred to uh, the claimant as being, quote, economical with the truth, unquote. Well, she was cross-examined on that. She had to admit that that was actually a euphemism for lying. And the judge, in uh, commenting on her evidence, Uh, held that it was particularly egregious for her to have uh, included that uh, in her evidence.
0: So extremely important for clinicians acting as experts to be aware of what the role does and does not involve. I just wanted to go back to you Dr Tracy and ask about what the major biases are and, and the other pitfalls that can actually impact on a clinician's ability to detect malingering where it may exist?
2: I, I think there are several potential problems. So, so one is uh, the countertransference, the, the, the feelings that a patient evokes in us or that a client evokes in us and, and they can be both positive and negative. So I think during an assessment one has to be careful about feelings and how that might affect uh, completion of a report. There's an issue of what's called confirmatory bias, and what that means is that if there's a hypothesis, for example, I think this person is malingering or I think this person is not malingering, that the clinician may follow a line of questioning to confirm their belief about that. So there's a danger about that and about not having questions being sufficiently open or not being sufficiently balanced in presenting the evidence The data certainly suggests that clinicians are overconfident in their own opinion of their ability to detect malingering. And really, if if one looks at where there have been actors who are feigning malingering, clinicians, even highly experienced clinicians, do not do very well in it. So I think recognising one's limitations, and that also transfers to psychometric data. As Keith mentioned in the first podcast, I, I think there's an issue about summing up all the evidence and there's a danger for clinicians in relying solely on psychometric test data. The obvious example would be where an individual put forth a reasonable history and mental state but, for example, failed malingering tests or symptom validity tests. There can be various reasons for that. So one reason is malingering, so an individual has Invented or exaggerated a history and through their exaggeration has failed the malingering test. But there's also a possibility that an individual has a true mental illness and for various reasons, which can include significant distress and fear and a desire to impress upon a clinician how bad their plight is, despite their true illness, they may nevertheless exaggerate on psychometric test data and thus fail it. So I think one has to be balanced in summing up all the evidence
0: so it really is a process of looking at the, the whole picture and not being swayed necessarily by one or other particular pieces of, of evidence
2: very, very much so and i think something that we mentioned earlier and the, the, the concept of a continuum mm. Idea rather than it being a binary yes or no. I think it's the plausibility of the presentation and how well or less well it fits in with the clinical diagnosis.
0: Now, we touched on the concept of external incentives, which may go some way to explain malingo symptomatology. How important is it for the clinician to try to determine possible external incentives or motivations?
1: The clinician in the medical legal setting is going to be aware of the fact that there are potentially uh, external incentives uh, that may influence what the person says and how they uh, behave. It may be the incentive uh, of a large sum of money in compensation for injuries sustained in an accident or as as a result of negligence. Uh, or the incentive uh, may be the avoidance of a criminal conviction uh, or a lesser sentence than might otherwise be imposed for one. But there is a difficulty for the expert and that is that they will not usually have evidence that allows them to identify the incentive for the Uh, person's uh, uh, behaviour for the symptoms they report. So generally uh, I would say that the expert is best advised to avoid uh, referring to uh, the motives uh, for the behaviour. The expert who does refer to motives is uh, going to be at some risk in uh, cross-examination. They'll be asked, how do you distinguish between a dishonest intent and unconscious exaggeration? What is the actual evidence that the claimant is motivated by the incentive of obtaining financial compensation or some other external gain? And it seems to me that the difficulty in which the expert finds himself or herself in answering those questions illustrates the fact that the answers are not... Uh, within the province of actual expert opinion. These are matters if they are to be answered are uh, they are matters for the court uh, to answer and not for the expert.
2: I think some of this comes back to, to the idea we mentioned earlier of confirmatory bias so uh, uh, it, there could be a significant external incentive and still true mental ill health and there's a danger for a clinician in identifying or trying to identify it, and there thereafter following a line of questioning to try link them, which, is, as Keith mentioned, is not their role, one could have very many uh, valid external incentives. So we, the, the obvious examples are perhaps in things like PTSD. If someone was seeking asylum, there's a, there is an incentive, but that incentive could nevertheless very much be there with true mental health.
0: Now, in the first podcast, we talked about how No one particular symptom can be seen as being truly ever characteristic or defining for malingering. But are there characteristics that we do know are associated with the higher risk of malingering?
2: There is some evidence on this, but I would start off with caution. So we have actuarial data in a sense, so there's statistical data on information such as the seriousness of an offence. There is statistical data on issues such as the rates of personality disorder, uh, on issues such as substance misuse, about lack of employment and life uh, opportunities. But again, it's, it's quite difficult to assign this to an individual. And again, there's a difficulty or there's a potential difficulty of confirmatory bias. For example, one seeing an individual with with difficult circumstances or who was known to have a personality disorder and therefore increasing the likelihood in one's mind that they were malingering, which I don't think is a reasonable thing to do. And of course, mental health problems could be, these problems could be the consequence of something they've been through as well as causing any difficulties. So yes, there, there are data to suggest increased risks or occurrences of, of some problems like personality disorder, but I, I think one has to be quite circumspect in reporting that.
0: Mm-hmm. We previously discussed in the first podcast the number of psychometric tests which can help a clinician in determining whether malingering is present, um, but we also considered some of the limitations of those tests. What role do such psychometric tests play in the courtroom?
2: I I think they have an important role, but I I think the the expert has several roles within this, one of which is to identify the limitations of any tests used. And in in the first podcast, Keith mentioned the the Debart criteria about have, have these been tested. So I think if using psychometric tests, one should be aware of their uses and their limitations. An example might be, has this test been used in the population at hand? So where, where were the normative of data obtained from? It's very common for normative of data to be taken from college students in Western countries. And how applicable is that to one's patients? Were they able to fill it in by themselves? Did they have assistance with reading or writing? Was an interpreter used? I think in court, As well as providing information on the result of the test and what that might mean in supporting or refusing a diagnosis, I think the expert witness must be upfront about the limitations of the test itself and once again put it within the whole of the larger assessment. Yes,
1: if only to emphasise the importance of seeing test results as part uh, of a much larger body of evidence and to be aware of the fact that, that the court considering the whole of that body of evidence may actually reach a conclusion about the, as it were, the genuineness uh, of the say, the claimant in, in a civil case uh, that is actually different to what might be suspected from the interpretation of the psychometric data. Uh, often uh, because the court places greater evidence on how the person has behaved in real-life situations rather than how they've performed in a test situation.
0: And finally, I'd just like to ask how you would recommend that psychiatrists approach the reporting of their findings in cases where malingering may be an issue?
1: Yes, Um, the the task uh, of of the expert is to actually set out the evidence that's in favour of a given diagnosis or illness, along with the evidence against it, rather than to tackle the issue of malingering per se. So that means that the expert has to give a dispassionate logical sequential account of those factors that support and those that go against a a true diagnosis and the relative strength uh, of the evidence for and against. They have to identify confounders and areas of conflict, ambiguity and uncertainty uh, and of course accept the limitations uh, of their own knowledge and expertise. So uh, Uh, I would break down the uh, format uh, of reporting uh, into four parts. First of all, looking at the diagnostic evidence that comes from the history and mental state examination, uh, the cornerstones, uh, of course, of psychiatric diagnosis. That may include looking at discrepancies and uh, uh, commenting on those. The second uh, part uh, of the reporting is the evidence that comes from the psychometric testing but with all of the caveats to which we've both uh, referred so that the court is aware of just how much reliance can be placed on particular test results. The third category of evidence to be considered is the collateral and secondary uh, information, witness statements covert surveillance so often carried out in uh, uh, personal injury cases being pursued in the civil courts but uh, information for witnesses on very uh, straightforward and mundane uh, matters such as loss of appetite, loss of weight which of course means so much to a clinician when they're considering a diagnosis of for example a depressive illness. And then the final part uh, of the uh, of the process is to put together all of that inf- information from the three uh, areas in order to provide an objective summary of the factors that are in favour of the diagnosis and the factors that uh, are uh, against the diagnosis. To, carried out in a straightforward and logical way uh, then uh, the court is left to uh, administer justice and to do so on the basis of what has hopefully been truly independent and impartial evidence, uh, which uh, it, it, it is of course uh, the, the, the expert witness's first duty to provide.
0: I think on that note, I would like to finish by thanking both of you for this fascinating and comprehensive exploration of what is a highly complex topic, And it's been very useful to cover both the clinical assessment and also consider issues around medico-legal reporting. So thank you both very much.
1: Thank Thank you.